of Jude. If you're not familiar with this book, uh, it may be a little hard to find as it's the second to last book of the Bible. Uh, it's just before Revelation and it only has one chapter, okay? So uh, I, w- I was trying to determine um, whether I was still being led to preach on a specific topic this week or not because that's, you know, lately I've been doing a few topical sermons. I typically do expository sermons. Um, and for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit has apparently led me to Jude. So this, this is the book that I am going to expect to spend at least three weeks in, uh, possibly more. It, it has, there's, there's some amazing and important stuff in it. And to be frank, I, I honestly don't know if I've ever heard anyone preach uh, a sermon on the book of Jude other than at a, uh, it was actually a junior high uh, Christ and youth conference about 20 plus years ago that I went to. So um, Jude, what's that? Oh, Jude is a very densely packed book, but it's also a fairly uh, neglected one. And so I'm not certain of the reason for that, but while, uh, while some kids are finding the bingo pictures here, um, I'm going to share my guess. I think it's because it's kind of a tough read. I think the book of Jude can be difficult uh, to read and understand. For a short book of the Bible, for one thing, it has some really odd characteristics. Uh, first off, it references a story that's not found anywhere else in Scripture. Okay? And that's, that's a little odd. It also quotes Enoch, the only person besides Elijah who's ever uh, ascended into heaven without dying first. Um, but that quote isn't found anywhere in the Bible. And on top of all that, the language is actually pretty ambiguous in some places. And so it's tough to know whether Jude is using language speaking from kind of an Old Testament, Old Covenant perspective, like Jesus often did when he was speaking to the Jews, uh, to those who were under the law, or if he's using a New Testament apostolic perspective, like when Paul and Peter uh, wrote their, their epistles. And then there are some passages that on the surface can seem difficult to reconcile with other parts of Scripture. Martin Luther even thought that Jude should be removed from the canon, along with some other books. He didn't like James either, um, because he, he thought they emphasized works too much. But I don't believe that the Bible contradicts itself, and uh, I, I think God intends that we read the book of Jude and learn from it. And so uh, there's certainly, almost certainly anyway, going to be some questions that, that are going to come up. I don't I can tell you this is for sure. I will not know the answer. I might be able to tell you what I think, but that doesn't mean I know the answer for certain, okay? I can just give you my educated opinion on it, so just be ready for that, okay? Um, You may have a different view from me, and and, um, it's possible that you're right, Uh, so just be aware of that, but I will tell you, when I'm studying, I want to be sure that I give you what the Lord wants you to hear. And so um, just whenever, especially as we're going through difficult stuff like the book of Jude, pray for your pastor so that God will give me the wisdom to be able to impart to you what he imparts to all of us. All right, so uh, we're going to read the first three verses of Jude this morning. We're going to see how the Lord uh, is going to speak to us from it. And so you're welcome to follow along. You can follow along your bulletin inserts or in your Bibles. Uh, It'll also be uh, up here on the screen. So if I can get it to work, I'm pushing the wrong button. There we go. All right. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our 
common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. God, I, I ask in Jesus' name for each of us, as I typically ask, to be good soil so that your word will take root and bear fruit. I pray, Father, that uh, I know I'm, I'm a very fallible human being who uh, can't even find his clicker and uh, who uh, sometimes probably inserts my own thoughts into uh, the things that, I, that I'm preaching. And so, God, I pray for wisdom. I pray for discernment so that I'm able to share your word with your people in a way that honors you and that draws them closer to you, Father. And I pray uh, against any error that might come into my thinking, God, I just I ask for, I ask for you to just faithfully show me how you want your word spoken to your people. Um, God, I thank you for your word. Such a blessing to have it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start with the very first line. It's a good place to start, right? Very first line. Uh, this is according to his own words. Who is Jude? Jude is a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Okay, that's great. That's a start, but where do we know him from? What, what gives him the authority to be able to speak to Christians and be considered an inspired vessel of God? Well, traditionally, there's two views as to who is the author of Jude. And in both cases, Jude is essentially a shortened form of the Greek Judas, uh, or, or Judas, which is the Hebrew, or the Hellenized version of the Hebrew Judah, okay? Uh, one view is that he was the apostle known as Judas, not Iscariot, okay? Now, we don't have a lot of, uh, of information about him from Scripture, but in the upper room, he's the one who asked Jesus, I'm ahead of myself, he's the one who asked Jesus, Lord, uh, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So that's his one line that we have in Scripture. Um, and so that's, that's one view. I personally think that... Uh, that it's more likely he's actually the half-brother of Jesus himself, okay? He says, um, he said, because there's no indication that Judas, not Iscariot, had a brother named James, but there's other reasons for this. By, by half-brother, uh, what I mean is that he shared a common mother with Jesus, but rather than being miraculously born as, as the son of God, Jude was one of Joseph's biological sons. And the Bible is very clear that Jesus had half-siblings. For instance, in Matthew chapter 13, uh, when the people in his hometown are trying to figure out how it is that Jesus is performing miracles, they asked one another, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are these not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all of his sisters with us also? Where then did this man get these things? It also makes sense that he would refer to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ rather than announcing himself to be the Lord's sibling. Because I mean, you might think, well, why didn't he just say, hey, I'm the half-brother of Jesus? Well, it might sound self-aggrandizing if you did that, right? Like, everybody look at me. Um, but instead, he mentions rather that, that he's the brother of James. And this is because James was known as the Lord's brother. In fact, Paul refers to him as such in Galatians 1.19. But more important then genetic connection is the spiritual connection. James was also a pillar in the church. This is not to be confused with James the Apostle. 
okay, who was the brother of John, and he was martyred under Herod around the time that Paul's ministry began. You may remember we, we studied that back in Acts chapter 12 a year or two ago. Um, anyway, I think that by far uh, the better viewpoint is that Jude was not the apostle. Okay, now I'm going back to this one. Um, because I think that that Clement of Alexandria, he was, he was born uh, around the time, well, I guess a little after uh, the Gospels were written. Clement of Alexandria um, was one of the early church fathers, and he wrote that Jude was the brother of both James and Jesus. And again, that was only a, a, like a generation or two removed from the authorship of the letter. So um, something that's really interesting about Jude and James is that neither of them initially believed in Jesus. You know, despite uh, surely hearing from their parents about the miraculous circumstances that surrounded Jesus' birth, it, it appears that even Mary went through a period of doubt about Jesus' Christhood. You know, Scripture tells us early in Jesus' ministry, it said uh, when his family heard of, of what he was doing, it says, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. And we can presume that Mary was with them because only a few verses later we read of Jesus He's meeting with some, you know, undesirables, some, some sinners, and, and, and as they're referred to, and teachers, uh, excuse me, tax collectors. Um, and it says, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So they're trying to get Jesus to go home, essentially. You may remember, he says, who is my mother and brothers? So those who hear God's word and obey. So per, there's... Um, they're concerned about Jesus. You know, they thought he was, he was either embarrassing himself, maybe even endangering himself. So in John's gospel, though, we see his brothers actually made fun of him because of his ministry and because of his mission. In fact, it clarifies, for not even his brothers believed in him. This is in John uh, chapter 7, I think. Yep, John 7. So um, perhaps the obvious question then is what changed? Right? Like what occurred in their relationship that let Jesus' brothers go from mocking doubters to devoted disciples. Well, I think the Bible gives us a clue, and we're going to read what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and in which, or by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, what he's about to say here is incredibly important, okay? He indicates that this, this following message has saving power for those who put their full faith in it, okay? So he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I want you to just, just take a moment here. Take a moment to appreciate that. Jesus Christ, God the Son and the Son of God, laid down his life in order that our sins might be forgiven. He was executed on a Roman cross. He was buried in a tomb. But then three days later, he rose from the dead. And on all of this, this is precisely what God said was going to happen through prophets centuries before in fact, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We almost got there this morning. <laughs> go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and we see a messianic passage there. 
But that's not the end. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for death. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, I'd be willing to bet that when the resurrected Jesus appeared to his brother James, that was probably where he came to faith. Wouldn't you guess? I, I would say that that's probably when James believed. And maybe Jude was with James at that time. Or, or maybe, and perhaps he was moved by that. Or maybe it was James' testimony later where he believed. Perhaps he was, he was one of that, that crowd of more than 500. We don't know, okay? But eventually, Jesus' brothers, at least James and John, believed in him. So, so then Jude writes, okay? To those who are called, beloved, in God the Father. Now, the, the, the first of three points here falls under the theme of important things pertaining to believers, okay? So that's what we're going to look at. Important things pertaining to believers. That's what we're looking at today in this epistle is, first of all, that Christians are called, okay? By the way, I really like how Jude writes. He, he may have been a preacher. I don't know, because he, do, he does things in threes, and so it makes it really easy to, uh, to read and also to preach off of. We're going to see this all the way throughout the letter, but, but what does it mean that Christians are called? You know, once again, there's at least two possibilities, all right? Now, one of them, if one of them is true, it pretty much has to include the other, but there's two possibilities. It, it's likely either one or both of them, so I'm going to share both op options, and I'm going to tell you which one I think it is. Uh, first, Jude could be saying that Christians were called in a strictly potential sense, okay? Now, this, this is very common use of the word called in the Old Testament, all right? Including the parts of, of some of what we think of are the New Testament, because usually we think of the, the, the Gospels as they were written as New Testament because they're placed in the New Testament, right? In that, that portion of the Bible, that 27 books. But honestly, most of what happens in the Gospels is still under the Old Covenant. It's still Old Testament. Until the moment Jesus died on the cross, that was the Old Covenant, then the temple curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. That temple curtain was about as tall as this building. That's pretty awesome if you think about it. No human being is going to rip that from top to bottom. That was God's way of saying, I'm about to step out. I'm leaving the building and I'm entering hearts. So that's when the new covenant officially began. But anyway, um, so... Potentially, I want you to think of it as a one-sided call, okay? For instance, there have been times um, that I have tried to get in touch with someone from Walmart over the phone. Have you ever called Walmart? Okay, that is a one-sided call, <laughs> all right? I, I, I can tell you, that, I don't know if you've ever tried to do this. It's basically an exercise in futility. You might call, you might even get the touch tone service, but the chances of speaking to an actual human being are extremely small, okay, when you call Walmart. And so just because the call goes through doesn't mean it will be answered. It doesn't mean it's going to be responded to, all right? We see a lot of this in the Old Testament prophets. In fact, here's an example from Hosea, okay? He's referring to the people of Israel. He says, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings 
to idols. So obviously, in this case, the calling had either no effect, or if he's speaking literally, then they had the opposite effect, right? The, the effect intended, or that, that, that appears to be intended, certainly did not occur. We see another example of this also this one is what we think of as the New Testament in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, when Jesus explains cryptically why so many of the Jews were rejecting salvation. He said, for many are called, but few are chosen. Oh, that's an interesting phrase. Many are called, but few are chosen. So here we see Jesus makes a distinction between those that are called and those who are chosen. Now, under the Old Covenant, it appears that in most circumstances, the calling was only potential. However, in most, though not all, but in most of the apostolic writings, God's calling was not only potential, but also effectual. Okay, What that means is, those whom God called in a specific way were particularly elected to respond properly in faith and be saved. I realize this is a somewhat controversial passage, uh, or a controversial concept, not so much with me. I'm very comfortable with it, in fact. Um, but two of the more prominent examples of this in Scripture are in Romans and 1 Peter. So in Romans 8, we see Paul wrote, Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. Something very interesting about this whole passage is it's all in the aorist in Greek. What does that mean in English? Past tense. Thank you. Who said that? You rock, Christy. Past tense. That's all. It's, this is done. From God's perspective, it's a done deal. It's one of the reasons I love the song, It Is Finished, so much. It is done. It is finished. Christ has won. He is risen. I love it. It's a good song. Uh, so in this, in this case, we see uh, that this perspective is something that has already happened uh, from God's perspective who transcends time. Remember, we don't transcend time. And so we see things that happen in a linear fashion. God does not. He sees it from beginning to end. Um, likewise, in the fifth chapter of his first letter, Peter wrote... After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Sounds again like a done deal. And because this view of called seems to be the predominant view in the New Testament, it's my opinion, this is just my opinion, that Jude is speaking specifically to those who are already believers and thus who will persevere to the end, okay? However, I would also argue that a potential calling must exist in order for the effectual calling to work. For instance, we know uh, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, obviously, this does not mean that everybody in the world will be saved, okay? This is the big problem I have with the, the, the phrase... Oh, I probably shouldn't get into that, but I'm going to real quick say it. <laughs> Limited atonement, okay? I know a lot of folks uh, believe in a specific um, theological or doctrinal structure that includes limited atonement that claims Jesus only died for those that uh, were going to choose him or that, that, he was, that he chose, whatever the case may be. 
it says in Scripture, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To me, that pretty much just blows limited atonement out of the water. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. Sorry for going there. Um, but again, it doesn't mean everybody's saved. However, everyone's sin is potentially forgiven, although it is only effectually given by grace through what? Faith. Okay? But either way, no matter how you view this, Christians are called. Okay? So we're going to keep reading. Uh, to those who are called and beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So church, Christians are called, but we are also conserved. We are conserved. I'm going to ask a question today, and if you say anybody that lived in your lifetime, I'm going to be disappointed with you, okay? Who is the manliest president that we ever had in this country? Amen. Amen. <laughs> if you've never studied Theodore Roosevelt, look him up. That was a man's man right there. They told him he probably wasn't going to live until past his 20s because he was frail as a child. So he becomes a pugilist and a cowboy, and, and he grows up to be... He, he's given a speech, you guys. He's given a speech. And right before the speech, he's got his... his now, he, he speaks even longer than I do, so you can imagine it was a thick bunch of paper. But he had a folded-up message in his coat pocket. Guy pops out of the crowd with a gun and shoots him. Teddy, whoa, gets shot. Guy gets taken down. Mr. President, Mr. President. They're ready to run. He wasn't president yet, actually, but he was one of the, the elects. And they were, they were wanting to rush him off. And he pulls out the, this, this, you can look this up. This happened. He pulls out his speech, and he opens up his shirt, and there's a hole in his body, but it's not bubbling. So he goes, well, I guess my lung is okay, so I'm going to give my speech. It was over an hour long. And he gave the speech, and he ended with something about, you can't stop a bull moose, okay? This guy, this guy was president of the United States. What in the world happened? I don't know. I don't know. We used to have men that were manly presidents. Anyway, so shots fired. Okay, so um, <laughs> he was, one thing that he did that was really kind of iffy at the time but looking back, I'm glad he did it. He was big on conservation, right? You ever been to Yellowstone Park? I have not. I want to go really badly and hope to one day. Um, you ever been to any state park or national park? There's a beautiful one in Arkansas. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of different parks. These beautiful places were set aside. They're part of the nation's land that was set aside or conserved by the government so that they wouldn't be violated by industry, by mining, by hunting, by all that sort of stuff. They, they're essentially consecrated for a specific purpose, okay? And then any attempt to use these areas outside of the will of the government is going to be met and opposed with the full force and the full authority of the government in the same way. Christians are kept by God. Now, it is true that God allows us to be tempted. He allows us to be sifted. He even allows us to be harmed at times, but that does not affect our conserved status. Our God is sovereign. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. God, the Son, is our good shepherd, and He has placed His ownership on us. 
We are kept, we are preserved, we are guarded by God and His power. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I give my sheep eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He goes on to say, the Father who sent me is greater than I, and no one can snatch them from the Father's hand. There will be no snatching. Okay? We cannot be snatched from Jesus Christ. God never lets his guard down. If God lays claim to a person, we should understand it as a fully assured situation. Now, the Apostle Peter wrote, Praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, he, now I see what you're saying. That is kind of hard to read. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Whose power? Not mine? Not yours? No. God's power. God's power. It is not our power that keeps us in grace. It is God's power. This is an important fact to remember when we get into... Uh, it's further into Jude because in, in a couple weeks or maybe more, it kind of depends on how long it takes me to get to the middle section because it's really big. Uh, it, it says that we should keep ourselves in the love of God. And that's intense. So, so don't worry. We're going to talk about it when we get there, okay? Uh, but for now, just bear in mind, we are not kept by our own morals or by our own willpower, but by God himself. And listen, friends, we are not just kept by God. We are kept for God. We are kept for God. How many of us know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? You're familiar with it, right? For it is by grace that we've been saved through faith, and this what? Not of yourselves. Not a, it says it's a gift of God. Not by what? Works so that no one may boast. But then what does verse 10 say? For we are God's workmanship, right? It says that we are created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, yes, which he prepared beforehand in order for us to walk in them. We were made for a purpose. We're kept by God. We're kept for God. And this is really important for us to remember because, friends, listen, it is truly horrifying to me to, how often we forget this, how often we forget that we were made for God and kept for God. We spend far too much time, maybe all of us, professing Christians, spend far too much time living for ourselves instead of living for the one who paid our debt. Maybe the most famous line from the, the Westminster, uh, I can't say it right, Westminster, thank you, catechism. Anybody know that one? What's the most famous line? Anybody know it? What is the chief end of man? Wow. Close. What is the purpose of our life as human beings? Yes, the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, we do that by the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Okay? But we glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, I realize this catechism was written by human beings, okay? It's not on the same level of, as inspired Scripture. But I do believe 
that it expresses the overall purpose of humanity as it's laid out for us in Scripture. I think for often, uh, far too often, excuse me, we mistake the purpose of our eternal salvation uh, as knowing about God and enjoying ourselves forever. See what I'm saying? Rather than, rather than glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, we act like it's knowing about Him and enjoying ourselves forever. I see that all over the place. Sometimes I see it in my own life, and it's very discouraging. So here's a quick test. What are you most looking forward to when you get to heaven? If the answer is not seeing my Savior face to face, you might want to do a heart check. I want you to think about that. I mean, yeah, we, we ought to look forward to having new bodies that, that don't pain, don't have pain and, and that don't age. And, and we, you know, look forward to the ability to do things that we can't do here, you know, and especially seeing all of our loved ones who have gone on before us in Christ. But God created us first and foremost to have fellowship with him. Like Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the garden. And then they broke fellowship. We are created to have fellowship with God. He has preserved us. He is keeping us for himself. Okay? A little further in the book of 1 Peter, from where we were earlier, um, we read, let me make sure I got this pointed the right way. There it is, okay. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So we'll be able to fly and eat all the cookie dough we want, you know, when we get to heaven? No, the purpose is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's powerful. That's why he's saving us. It brings him glory. You know, the reason that, that God saved a bunch of rank sinners like us, it, it is, of course, because he is love. He loves us. We must not ignore that. But you understand, he wants to show his goodness to all of creation. It's not because he's got a, a big ego that he has to stroke. It's because God is so good that he deserves to be glorified. He deserves to be worshipped. And through his incredible mercy... And his, his self-sacrificial kindness, God has opened our eyes. You know, we used to be in darkness. He's opened our eyes to that darkness that we were living in, and he's brought us out of it into the glory of his eternal light and life. Praise God. So, so it's in light of the, these very deep opening statements that Jude writes, that we should read his last sentence of today's text. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... So, in other words, common in that it is a salvation that's reserved for everyone who truly places their faith in Jesus Christ. That includes you, that includes me, that includes the author of the letter. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, this is a really interesting statement. Okay, bear in mind that he is speaking to other Christians, right? He refers to them as beloved and he says that he was eager to write them about their common salvation. However, that does not end up being the main body of his letter. 
Okay? In fact, here's a spoiler alert for you guys. From verse roughly 4 through 19 or so, it is dedicated almost exclusively to a rant about false Christians that have infiltrated the church. And it may be that some of the people he was thinking about were in positions of leadership. But, but even, even lay people who, who were, if they're faking their profession of faith, that, that's apparently incredibly dangerous to, to the spiritual integrity of the body of Christ. And so Jude, is, he begins and he ends his letter with addresses that are, that are to and, and about believers. But the main chunk of the letter in the middle there is devoted to, to zealously denouncing hypocrites. And, and we can see from this very sentence, okay, here, that, that, that Jude, he hopes, he even expects that the recipients of the letter will join him in this zeal and this passion that he has for the purity of life and doctrine as Christians. So the giveaway is that he is he, he, appealing, that's a word he uses, he is appealing to his audience to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, because we are called by God and because we are conserved by God, Christians are to be contenders on behalf of God. Now, what is a contender? I think most of us, when we hear the word, we probably think of someone who's challenging a champion in boxing, right? And that's, kind of, that's how we typically use the word nowadays. But the word contender literally means one who contends, and the definition is a combatant. A disputer, I like this one, a wrangler, not the jeans, <laughs> but that's what the, one of the dictionary's uh, definitions is, a wrangler, right? Someone who fights. Now, this is strange for most Christians, right? Because we are taught to be humble and gracious, and we must be, not disputing that at all, but we should not mistake being peaceful people for always being non-confrontational. You know, sometimes gentle confrontation is necessary. Sometimes not so gentle confrontation can be necessary, and we're going to talk about that uh, in a couple of weeks. But in whatever context it occurs, okay, and, and whatever, whatever manner it entails, we must be vigorously defending the faith. And as we continue uh, to read Jude's epistle, we begin to see there are a lot of similarities, guys, between the first century visible church in the 21st century visible church. Every bit as much as now, the Christians back then needed to have clarity in the gospel message. They needed to have clarity in the expectations of Christian behavior. And it appears that many, many believers were apparently excusing the bad doctrine and the wicked behavior of some other professing believers simply because they were claiming to be Christians. Of course, doing that was... It was not only unhelpful to those errant Christians, but it was also, it, those wannabes, I guess, but it was also harming the true believers because they were being poisoned. They were seeing this behavior and accepting it as normal, okay? And toward the end of the letter, we see Jude, Jude gives instruction on how to deal with individuals who are in error. And we'll get there. But in the beginning, we can see just how important it is to defend the true Christian faith. Important enough that, that we should be willing and able to fight on the behalf of its proper representation. This is not supposed to be, and I've got to make this really clear, okay? I think sometimes people say, they look at Christianity and they view it as from more of a, a 
me plus perspective. This, we don't fight for it out of just some tribal impulse, okay? Or, or out of the desire simply to be right and always win an argument. This, we have an understanding, church, that this, the, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of salvation for those who believe. If we believe that this is how people are saved, we need to defend it. We need to fight for the truth, church. And the most, the most important truth is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that is the foundation of our faith, and it's really it's the basis of all truth. So let us commit to vigorously defending the faith as it is as fully complete and unchanging today as it was the day that Jude wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Can I get an amen? I mean, do you, do you understand this? It's the same. The Christian faith is the same today that it once was, that it, that it has been since it was delivered once for all to the saints. There is a great intensity in the last few words of this sentence, you know, we need to understand there's, there's, listen, there's nothing that needs to be added to the gospel message today in order for it to save. Nothing. Likewise, there's nothing that we should leave out of the gospel message, nor of the, the truth of scripture as it was relayed once for all to the saints. I mean, the truth about who Jesus is and what God did through him will never change any more than Christ himself will. And we know that he does not. Because what does Scripture say? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. The absolute need is faith. But that faith, friends, ought to be marked by repentance Confession, baptism, and obedience. That also does not change. Just as we must not add to God's word, we must not also subtract from his commands, which he has given to us all. Okay? And so, so th this is where we end the message today, church. Okay? It's a short one. You can thank me later. It, we, we end with an appeal to your conscience for the sake of, of God's kingdom and for your own sake, honestly. If you have not believed on Jesus, then believe. Believe with all your heart. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead. Do I have that backwards, Greg? Okay. It could be the other way around, but either way, if you're going to say it with your mouth, you need to believe it in your heart and vice versa. Amen? Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And if you have done that, then obey him. If you've not chosen to obey, then obey. Be baptized. Walk in faithfulness to your Savior. And if you're afraid to fight for the truth, guys, listen, I'm serious. Confess your cowardice to God. Say, look, I'm a sinner. I've, I messed this up. And then, and then ask God for the courage to contend for his sake. Be faithful because God is faithful. And you can do it today can do it this morning. Listen, the deeper we get into Jude, I'm telling you guys, the deeper, the scarier it gets. And the more that we recognize our responsibility to God right now, 
the better it's going to work out later as we keep going through this. Just listen, be convicted now. Be convicted now and get on track so that you waste as little time as possible. Okay? Why don't we pray? God, um, I'm not sure if that was an invitation so much as a challenge, but I ask in Jesus' name that for everyone here that they are challenged, that they understand, Father, that you are calling us to something further than we have already um, committed to, God, all of us. I, I believe that we, we must pour ourselves more into what you've given us to do with our lives, God. Um, I confess my own insufficiency and my own inability uh, to do everything that you would have me do, but I know, Father, that with your, your Holy Spirit's power, that you give us the ability to do the things that you ask us to do. God, give us obedience. Give us faithfulness. Help us to contend for the truth of the gospel message and for the rest of Scripture, Lord. It's easy for us to pick and choose the parts of Scripture that we like, but Lord, that's not what you've called us to do. Help us to stand firmly on the rock, and that rock is Christ. And God, if there's anyone here today that has not yet received Jesus, I pray that you move on their hearts, convict them. And Father, um, ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.